0: Um, We're continuing our Truth Shaped series, Uh, and so we've just got a couple more weeks left in the series. What we've been doing is jumping from Bible text to Bible text over the summer. Uh, Usually our habit is to kind of study a book of the Bible and just work through it one piece at a time, but over the summer we've been doing more topical, looking at areas where we are going in a different direction maybe than the culture or going in a different direction maybe than other churches because of the constraints we have from the scriptures. The Bible tells us to do it this way. And so we say, okay, maybe not everybody's doing this, but we're going to do life this way because that's what the truth tells us from the scriptures. Um, The next two weeks, we're going to be looking at worship next week, kind of our understanding of how God's people are to gather for worship. And then the week after that, we're going to look at human sexuality. So that'll be the exciting conclusion to the truth-shaped series. Uh, And then after that, we're going to start the book of James. So we'll be in the book of James for the fall. This week we're calling it truth-shaped identity. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 can be found on page 1022 in the black Bibles that you'll see under your chairs. 1022 uh, in those black Bibles it's 1 John chapter 3. Um, I would say that our culture teaches us to find our identity either in our desires, our internal desires, or in our external accomplishments. So we're told your identity, who you really are, is either what you desire or it's what you've done. That's what our culture teaches us. And I believe the scripture teaches us something different. The scripture is going to challenge us to get our identity uh, externally from who God is. Not what we've done, not what we desire, but who God is and what he says about us. So let's, let's look at this. 1 John chapter 3, it says... Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So let me pray for us. We've got some hard words here. Pray that the Lord would help us. Um, Some tough stuff, I think some of it will become more clear as as we talk about it, Um, but some of it we need God's help just to soften our hearts. So let me pray for us. God, we pray for your help, we pray for your spirit to meet us here. Uh, We ask that you would help us to listen. God, you know uh, we we tend to want to be our own God, and so we pray that you would supernaturally help us to be open to who you are, to listen, uh, to implant your word in our hearts, to receive it, to obey you, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. As I said before, we often uh, find our identity either in our internal desires or what we've accomplished on the outside. Uh, I know when I was a teenager, I I wrestled with finding my identity in what other people thought of me. So that was kind of a uh, external accomplishment of maybe impressing people or being liked by the right people. I know that was a struggle for me as a teenager. When I went into high school, I remember a particular week in my life. It was my first week of high school, so I was a freshman. uh, And I'd actually taken Spanish 1 in junior high, so I was in Spanish 2 in high school as a freshman, which meant most of the people in the class were upperclassmen. And I felt like one of the great accomplishments of my first week of school was that most of the upperclassmen thought I was an upperclassman for, like, the first week. And then they figured it out, and it was all over with, right? But... For about a week, I was able to fool them. And it's funny as we think about the things that we place our identity in, now looking back as a 42 year old, that seems silly, right? It's easy to have that kind of, uh, that kind of hindsight as 2020 moment where you look back at something that was really important to you in the past, but now you realize that's not so important. And I think we all struggle with identity at different passages of life maybe going into high school, maybe junior high, one of the most awkward ages of our life, right? Junior high age. Uh, maybe you've just become a young mom for the first time, and previously you went to work and got praised for what you did, and now you're at home wiping noses and changing diapers and feel completely isolated and like no one appreciates you, um, and you're struggling with your identity. Or maybe uh, you're my age, and you've been in the military, and you're retiring now and looking for a new career, and you're like, what, who am I if I'm not a soldier anymore? And you're kind of wrestling with that. Um, So whether you're a teenager, you're an adult, whatever the transition is that we're going through, we often have this sense of who am I, where am I going, what am I doing, and we struggle to know who we are. In the text here, it gives us, I think, a sense of peace that God gives us an identity primarily. And our identity is not primarily found in what we've done, who we are at work, what our role is, but in who God says we are. And so that's why the truth of the Scriptures is really important in shaping our sense of identity, our sense of who we are. The first thing that I want to to key on as we look at 1 John 3 is verse 1. Our primary identity is a beloved child. Our primary identity, like the one thing you can take with you through your transitions in life, whether you're a new mom or an empty nester, whether you're new in your career trying to figure out what you're going to do, or if you're retiring, Whether you're an awkward teenager or an aging elderly person, no matter what phase of life you're in, no one can take away from you the primary identity that God gives us as a beloved child of God. That's the one thing that that we can hold on to. That's the one thing that can help us in all the other phases of our life as well. It helps us to live out uh, in a better way our secondary identity, our role in life, whatever job we have, if we're solid on that primary identity of being a beloved child of God. Look again at verse 1. We read this already. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So it says, Things may be crazy in this world, right? The world may not know you. There may not be a kinship you have with this world. You You might feel like you're in conflict with this world. We live in a broken world, a world of pain, a world where we struggle to feel accepted, a world where we face difficulties, where things go badly at work. The world may not know you, but God knows you. And you have an identity that is solid in him. I love this word. The first word in verse one in the ESV is see. Some of the older translations, it says behold. Have y'all ever, y'all heard that? It was an old song used to be, behold what manner of love the father has given unto us. Anybody know, old school Christians here know that song? Okay, the word in Greek, there's a word there they're translating literally. It's, it's literally, look, behold, see this, right? So it's kind of like a, a pay attention word. We don't, we don't really say behold anymore in English, so that's why they translate it here, see. Um, but another way to translate it might be, check this out, right? Or, or pay attention. Look, look at this. God loves us. We should have a sense of amazement. There should be a sense of, pay attention to this. This is very important because the world is not going to tell you this. God loves you. You're a child of God. That should blow your mind. That should change everything for you. That sense of God loving us. And so I just want us to to kind of pause on that for a little bit because we we skip over that really easily. It's one of those things we've heard a million times. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible, tells me so. And we can kind of skip over that, but it, it changes everything. It's what enables you to not place your identity in your internal desires or struggles. It's what enables you to not place your identity in what you've accomplished or not accomplished in this world. It is the only thing that can't be taken away from you in this life. God loves you. God loves you. There's this word that John has used a couple of times in the book of 1 John. It's a big word called propitiation. Uh, And sometimes it's translated as atonement, which is another big word, so that's not really helpful. So I want to explain to you what it means. Propitiation means literally that through Jesus, God has made himself happy with you. He's propitious towards you. It's an old word that means he's pleased with you. So so the idea is this, that God is not frowning on you and waiting for you to get your stuff together, but if you trust in what Jesus has done for you, God delights in you. So there's this sense of the father smiling upon us as his child. I have a picture here of of a dad smiling on a on a young baby. Many of us struggle to know God in that way. Uh, Many of us have had fathers that didn't really relate to us in that way. What the gospel does is the gospel changes our mind about who God is. It turns us from seeing God as constantly frowning on us or trying to hurt us or do something harmful to us to understanding that God delights in us because of Jesus. God loves us, so he sent his son to take our sins upon himself on the cross to give us Jesus' righteousness because God delights in you. So the question is, are you going to continue to live your life thinking of God frowning upon you, or are you going to trust, are you going to rest in the idea that God is pleased with you through Jesus? And here's the, here's the crazy thing, is the text is going to show us that when you understand that God is pleased with you through Jesus, that actually makes you want to do what's right. Like we think of it in completely opposite direction. The way way we're raised, we think, well, the only way I'll do what's right is if God's disappointed in me. I need that guilt to motivate me to do the right thing, right? But that's not how it works. The gospel is backwards. The gospel says, I'm pleased with you. Now go trust me and do what I say. It's sometimes called the third use of the law. It's kind of like a theological term, and that is, um, recognizing because God loves me, his law must actually be good. What he wants might actually be a good idea because he loves me. He delights in me, so I'm gonna start trying to do what he says. Now, we struggle with that because, our, because we're sinful. Our inclination is to do our own thing and to be our own God and to set our own rules. But God says, I love you, and I love you so much that I've, I've set rules for this universe. And if you live according to my law, you read the scriptures and try to obey what I say, things are going to go better for you. But we don't obey to get him to love us. We obey because he loves us. And that's what's going to unfold here in the passage. My question for you is what is the picture you have of God's posture towards you? God hates sin. God hates sin. He hates sin so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. He poured his wrath out upon Jesus on the cross. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin for us. So that when God looks at you, he delights in you through Jesus. He sees you as his very own son. He's pleased with you through Christ. The question is, do you believe that? So if, if you had a dad that didn't measure up to that standard of love, what I would challenge you with is the reason you know that there was something wrong with your earthly father is because God's hardwired into us this idea of a perfect father. So even if you didn't have a perfect father, you can know the love of a perfect heavenly father. That's why you know your earthly father wasn't perfect, because you have the standard. You, You know there's something more out there. And the God of the Bible is that perfect father who loves us. It doesn't mean he just blinks and looks the other way. He deals with sin. He dealt with it decisively through Christ on the cross. So that he can look upon you in love. So that you can, in your own mind and heart, see him as one who delights in you and loves you. And that actually motivates you to stop sinning. And that's much of what the rest of the passage is about. So our identity is not in our internal desires. I must have this. I've got to have this to be happy. No, we say, God loves me so much he gave me Jesus. So I'm going to set aside my internal desires. I'm going to set aside this drive to achieve at work or at home, to prove myself, I'm going to recognize that God loves me, so I can stop and say, God, what do you want me to do? And then I can do my work for the glory of God. I can set aside desires and obey God's desires, because I trust that God loves me. And so this motivation of love then drives us to do what's right in life. So the next thing I want us to understand is that our identity is changed and changing. So it's a point-in-time thing that happens, right? When you trust Jesus, you really are saved. You really are secure. Nothing can snatch us out of God's hand, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. We're, we're secure in him, but there's also a process. We're changing. Many times theologians talk about it this way. They talk about being justified as a point in time. You're declared just. You're declared righteous because of what Jesus did. So when God looks at you, whether you are, you're a baby Christian or someone who's been walking with Jesus for 20 years, both of you are delighted in as God's perfect child by faith in Christ. So that's the point in time, you're changed. Once and for all, it happens. But there's this process, theologians often call the process sanctification. That means you're being uh, sanctified, you're being made a saint, you're being made holy, you're being set apart, you're made more and more to look like Jesus and how you actually live your day-to-day life. So there's a tension there of resting in God absolutely loves me and nothing I can do can change that because of Christ. And because of that, I want to start following him. I want to start listening to what he says. I want to start reading his word and obeying what he's telling me to do. And I want to start putting sin away more in my life. So that's the summary. Let's look at what the text says in verses 2 through 6. So look at 1 John 3, 2 through 6. Beloved, so we're back to these children. We are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. So that's the summary. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So sometimes theologians talk about the end game as glorification. So we talk about justification. That's a point in time you're saved. You're seen as righteous in God's eyes through Christ. Sanctification, this process of being more and more set aside to look more and more like Jesus, and then glorification, sin is gone. We see him face to face. We can't even imagine that stage, right? We can kind of poke around and get a little bit those other two stages, but there's a stage we look forward to of seeing Jesus face to face and just our sin being done away with. This this one day Romans 8 talks about of the sons of God being revealed and creation's not going to groan anymore. Things won't be broken. We won't be filled with angst and pain and disease anymore, but things will all be made right. We look forward to that day. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, we look forward to that. We'll, we'll be like him eventually. And we're already his children. A, a good illustration of, of it is this. I have a son uh, who is now officially bigger than me, right? Like literally weighs five or 10 pounds more than me, uh, is pretty strong. And so he can mow the lawn for me, right? When he was two, he couldn't mow the lawn. How many of you have a two-year-old that you would trust mowing the lawn? Some of you? have really strong two-year-olds, I I wouldn't let my two-year-old mow the lawn. He just couldn't handle it. But that doesn't mean he wasn't my son, right? Like, he was my child. And nothing could take that away. But now he can mow the lawn. So, So there's a sense there of changed and changing, right? Like, there's the point in time and there's the process. There's God loves you. He delights in you through Jesus. And he wants you to grow up. He wants you to continually set sin aside. He wants there to be progress in your life of pursuing him and following him and, and trusting him more. Because you love him, because he loves you, you recognize he's good, you can trust him, you can do what he says, and you continually are setting sin aside and, and a process of growth. I have a picture here of, uh, this is the actor that was in the movie Boyhood. Have you all ever heard of this movie Boyhood? It just came out. I haven't even seen it. I was just kind of fascinated by the idea because what they did is they made the movie over like 12 years, 15 years Followed a kid from the age of six to the age of about 20, I think. So that would be 14 years. But it was over a long period of time. So that's the same kid, right? Like if you have a facial recognition uh, problem, that's that's the same person just growing up, okay? Left to right, that's him aging over many years. And that's how they filmed the movie. So very unusual way to film a movie over multiple years following his life. In the reviews I read one of the critiques was that there seemed to be kind of a rambling story arc of uh, a lack of direction in the boy's life, um, of him struggling to grow up. And, And one of the things that I also read in the review was that the father lacked direction. And so we see in our own lives, when our father lacks direction, sometimes we lack direction, and it's hard for us to know how to grow up. The scripture says, through Christ, God is your father, and he gives you direction. And he wants you to grow up. Now, it's not a perfect, like, up one step every year process, right? For those of you that have been following Jesus for a few years, you know it's really more of an up and down, right? Kind of a bunny hop forward, backward. It's not just steady progression where you just get better and stronger and more perfect every year. I mean, we we don't just magically become perfect as we follow Christ, but we are in this process of following him and growing. We're changed and we're changing. We know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So those of us that hope in being perfect, we hope in what Jesus is doing in our life, we will purify ourselves. We will actively seek to live righteously because of the grace that God's already given us. We'll try to grow even though we know it's God growing us, we know it's his grace at work in us, we will actively purify ourselves knowing the grace that he's given us as his beloved child. He goes on and explains it more. Verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So he's saying here, that we can't just continue in sin. Does he mean that you never sin again? No. It's clear in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, he would say, to be a Christian, you have to admit that you have sin and that Jesus is your only hope. So there's kind of two extremes. One extreme would be there is just denying you have sin, right? Just pretending I'm saved and now I don't sin anymore. That would be one extreme that's a little unhealthy. The other extreme is I'm saved and grace is so good that God doesn't give a rip what I do. That's another extreme, and that's happening more and more in our culture, right? God's kindness and his, his grace is so wonderful that he doesn't actually care if you live righteously. But John is saying, no, that's not true. You see, just the same kind of things that are being taught in churches today, that God doesn't really care what you do, just follow your desires, because he's just nice, and he winks and sweeps your sin under the rug. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter. That, that kind of thing was being said in this day as well. They were called false teachers, They taught that God didn't really care how you lived, and it didn't matter if you were righteous or not because Jesus died to take away your sins. John says, no, the opposite is true. Jesus died to take away your sins, so stop sinning. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, right? Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in him. We trust him to deal with it, but we should be purifying ourselves. We should be trying to follow him. We should be trying to obey him, not because we're going to... uh, earn his love or earn his favor. He gives it to us as a gift. But because he gives us his love as a gift, we want to follow him. We want to do what he says. My question for you is where are those areas in your life that you're struggling to obey him? But what are those specific areas where you're just, you have a hard time doing what he says? You want to do it your way. You need to find brothers and sisters to confess those sins to, to pray for each other, to continue to study the scriptures, to understand it at a deeper level to understand better what God says, but also uh, as you live that out, as you practice that, trying to purify yourself. James 5.16 says it this way. He says, um, confess your sins one to another, pray for each other that you may be healed. It's a process. God puts us in community. In 1 John 8 and 9, he sets it up as just kind of a big idea. Christians are people that confess their sinners and trust Jesus to save them. That's kind of the big idea. The actual practice of it, James talks about in James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So as we gather together as Christians, we look at God's word together. We confess, yeah, I'm not really measuring up. We admit that. We talk about that with our friends. We pray for each other. That's, that's Christian community. We talk about here uh, as missional community, right? We're on mission together to follow Jesus, to share him with others. And we're uh, in community with each other confessing, yeah, I'm struggling in this area. Can you help me grow? Can you help me uh, to purify myself? And we help each other. We we lock arms with each other and walk together. I'd encourage you if you're not in community already, you need to find a brother or sister in Christ. Men, find a brother, ladies, find a sister that you can just get together with and, and pray. Pray for each other. Look at the scriptures together. That's just basic community. That would be an informal setting. A more formal setting would be a, a Bible study class or a small group that meets at the church or meets in someone's home. Get plugged into one of these groups. Or even more formal than that is the program of Celebrate Recovery, where it Helps people to work through a process, kind of a repeated cycle of confessing your sins and growing in the scriptures where you get together and say, I'm I'm struggling with this hurt or habit or hang up and I need to confess that to others, pray with others, look at the scripture together and grow. That's the process of purifying ourselves. So we don't stop sinning to earn God's love. We try to stop sinning because he loves us. You see that? Our primary identity is a beloved child of God and we are changed, and we are changing. And it's an ongoing process in our life. The next thing that I want us to see is that our identity is at war with evil. So a question to think about is, has the Christian life been presented to you as more like a cruise ship or a battleship? What do you think it is? Is Christian life more like a cruise ship or a battleship? I think a lot of churches today, especially in America and all of our wealth, and ease uh, compared to the rest of the world as we tend to portray Jesus and following him as a cruise ship. Everything's going to be great. Trust Jesus and all your problems will go away. Um, I would say that will happen, but that's when you die, okay? We call that heaven that's a little farther out in the future. Now, other Christians that are really hardcore about following Jesus may go to the other extreme of a battleship. And I would say, you know, really, it's probably more like a battleship with some fun, Right? A battleship with good morale, with wives and children on board, would be more like what our life is, right? So we don't want to go to the extreme of the prosperity gospel that says Christianity is a cruise ship, or the poverty gospel that just says, be stoic, life stinks, it's a battleship. But something in between, maybe on the battleship side, where we are at war, this is a broken world, right? It said earlier, the world doesn't recognize you if you follow Jesus. There's an antithesis there. There's a conflict that's going to happen. If You follow Jesus, there's there's going to be a rub. There's going to be a conflict and difficulty. Jesus says in John 16:33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So we have hope in him. We're changed, we're changing, but we are at war. There's a conflict taking place. Let's read verse seven. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. It's interesting to me that this needs to be defined, but this is because grace is so radical. Grace is so radical. It's so radical to say that God actually delights in you because of Jesus that sometimes people get a little messed up on this, and they think, so it doesn't matter what we do. So sin all the more that grace may abound. And Paul says, may it never be. And here John is saying, no, no, no. People that practice righteousness are righteous. So because God sees you as righteous, you should begin practicing it. You should begin living it out. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to literally undo. It's a word loose, kind of take apart, untie the knot. Destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So God's grace is so powerful, his spirit is within you, his seed. The seed of the gospel is a power at work in you. So if you keep on sinning and his seed is at work in you, it's going to make you crazy. So again, this doesn't mean we never sin again. It doesn't mean we're perfect. What it means is you just can't stand it. It's going to make you sick. And you're going to want to go confess your sins to God and to a brother and say, I need help, can you help me? Because I can't keep on sinning. Because no one who keeps on sinning is born of God. God's seed is at work within him. There's a power there in the gospel. There's a power in the Holy Spirit that will not allow us to continue in our sin. Again, don't hear this the wrong way, that that means we never sin again. It just means we cannot just keep going down that road. We can't just keep pursuing sin because Jesus is too beautiful. We want to pursue him. We might have long seasons. We might do stupid things. But we will hit rock bottom. We will confess our sins. We will follow Jesus again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he's real clear in the book of 1 John, there's false teachers going out saying it doesn't matter what you do. And John says, no, it does. It matters. You don't love your brothers and sisters you don't practice God's righteousness, you don't try to pursue him, again, not perfection, but pursuit of following Jesus, then you don't belong to Jesus. So, that, so the bad news is, some of you I'm trying to unsave right now. Some of I, I, want, you to, I want you to understand that just because you, you prayed a magic prayer at one point or cried at a camp, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. To be a Christian is to trust fully in Jesus' love for you, that he died on the cross for you. And to trust in that instead of trusting in yourself, your desires, or your accomplishments. And when you trust in him, you will begin to change. Again, not perfection. You don't need to start looking at each other and seeing how perfect each other are. But you will begin to pursue Jesus. You will begin to follow him. When you rest in this God who loves you so much that he grabbed hold of you, that he chose you and adopted you and made you his child and he delights in you and you are his you're going to begin to change things are going to change in your life you won't be able to go on and it says this is how it's evidenced in our life it says literally this is evident by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil by this pursuit of God by loving our brothers by doing what's right by being a part of what Jesus is doing destroying the works of the devil have have y'all seen the movie unbroken anybody seen that movie I grabbed a picture from that movie. This guy was a prisoner of war. He survived being lost at sea. And it's just a a great movie of just him just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And this is the image I was thinking of here where it says, Jesus came to fight against evil. And we will be revealed to be God's children when we also fight against evil. So if you're going to follow God, there's going to be a sense of struggle. A lot of people in all the discussions that are going around about human sexuality right now would say, it's not fair that people would have to struggle. God wants your life to be easy. And again, I would say that is the future we're headed toward. We are headed to paradise. But the world we're in now is still a world of fight. If you're a child of God, the world does not know you because it doesn't know him and the world's not done yet. Romans 8 says it is groaning, and it is longing for Jesus to finish what he started. So he saved us, but this war is still taking place. There's still a struggle. There's still difficulty that we're living through now, and we display it's evident that we're children of God if we are in the struggle. If there's no struggle, that's evidence that you don't belong to him. You're just zooming along the way the world is going, then that's evidence you don't belong to God. But if there is that struggle, that fight to follow him, then that's evidence that God's seed is at work in you. And it doesn't mean your life is perfect. It doesn't mean you never make a mistake. It means you're struggling to follow him. You're pursuing him because the motivation that you believe God loved you so much, he sent his son for you. That God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and God accepts you and he delights in you through what Christ has accomplished. I want us to wrap up by remembering what God the Father said to Jesus. It's in uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, both. He goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying, I can't baptize you because this is about repentance of sin. You're not a sinner. You know, there's this little debate there. And Jesus says, this is, this is right. This is appropriate. I'm walking through. I'm fulfilling all righteousness. So we see Jesus living out this example of what we should do as well. And in that moment when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and a voice comes from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And what's amazing about the gospel is that that is what God says to us in Christ. We are hidden in him. And to us also, he says, I'm, I'm pleased with you through Jesus because Jesus is enough we pray for us and then we'll respond together in communion in a final song god we thank you that you gave your son jesus to us we pray that you'd help us to repent of seeing you as someone who is angry or vengeful towards us we thank you that you poured out your wrath on your son so that now we can see you as one who delights in us who smiles upon us who is pleased with us who is propitious towards us we thank you that you love us And we pray that that would motivate us to live in a new way, that we would pursue you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.